Thank you, worship band. I can remember the, the first time I really understood the cross in my life. Um, it was when I was like a junior high age, maybe late elementary, I don't know. But it was when the Passion of the Christ came out. You guys remember that? It was a crazy time. And uh, I remember going uh, like on opening night or opening day or whenever it was. And uh, our family drove out like all the showings were like packed. And like somehow my dad like weaseled a ticket through like some, some guy that like owned the movie theater. I don't know. Somehow he got it. And uh, we drove out to the Valley Theater because we got tickets there and uh, to see the Passion of the Christ. And I'm just thinking, you know, I'm remembering like the Ten Commandments. Anyone seen the Ten Commandments? Oh, geez. I'm thinking like, oh, here we go to this like movie where like Moses is going to do something crazy or something like that. And he's going to be shot in like, you know, a 1930s camera. But I remember just being there and how powerful that was just in this packed auditorium and and visually really seeing Christ's life and his death. And and just that that the the part of the movie where it's uh, where Jesus is flogged and he's crucified and all this stuff like it's crazy and it's intense really intense. And I, I just remember just the, the auditorium that there, there were just people weeping. And, and uh, that's when it finally hit me because I had read the story so many times. I remember just seeing it in detail, how, how uh, intense it really was. And uh, so this morning we continue um, throughout the gospel of John and we land on John 19. And, and uh, when my dad told me that you're going to do the message on John 19, I was like, oh, this is crazy. This is for, you know, like Rob Shield or someone like that, you know. <laughs> and uh, I, I was just writing it and just getting really emotional as I'm writing it, you know, just, just reading the passage and studying on it. And, and every time I'm like writing a sentence or something like that, like just getting really emotional just because, you know, I'm reading this going like, how can someone like me teach on how Christ died for a sinner like myself? And I'm teaching on the man who died for that and, and just being emotional and thinking about all the times where I, I, I had sinned and all this stuff. And, and uh, it, it was pretty intense. And, uh, and so let's just go over this story together. And uh, uh, my, my prayer is that, that uh, God would use this in your life and uh, that we would reflect on this and, uh, and that he would use this story. So... We're at the point in the story where Jesus had gone through his entire ministry uh, and uh, he had been with his disciples. He had been proclaiming that he is the Christ. Uh, He'd been doing miracles uh, and he'd been preparing his disciples for this day that he was telling them that uh, I'm going to leave you. And uh, he had already had the last supper with his disciples. Um, uh, Judas had betrayed him and turned him over to Pilate for trial. Peter had denied him at this point, knowing him. And uh, we're at the point in the story where Jesus is about to go through one of the most intense, humiliating, and agonizing deaths any human could ever go through. But Jesus did this because it was God's plan of restoration. And he did this because he loved us so much. So this is where we pick up in John 19. So if you want to turn your Bibles, I Bible, whatever, there you can. Here we go, John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail the king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may uh, uh, know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. 
When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Jesus at this point had been beaten and uh, had been uh, flogged, uh, or which was a Roman scourging. Uh, and this was a frightful punishment for anyone at that time to go through. Uh, it, it was made up of a whip, which was braided from leather uh, throngs and interlaced with lead balls and metal and bone spikes. Six soldiers bearing these whips, lictors, wielded this uh, uh, punishment on the prisoner who was usually tied to a stake or a column. The severity of these scourgings uh, was such that the prisoner would usually faint or, or a lot of times die under this whipping. The whipping was applied to the back and end of the chest. Each stroke cut into the quivering flesh of the veins and sometimes the entrails were laid bare. The whip's tail would often strike the face, sometimes knocking out teeth or on an occasion even an eye. The victim was invariably reduced to a bloody mass of quivering flesh with virtually all strength drained from his body. And we know that this happened to Jesus. And we know that, that uh, from Isaiah 52, 14, that Jesus was beaten until almost unrecognizable. Isaiah 52 says, His appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Both in his face and his body, our Lord was horrendously disfigured by this beating. And then we reach this scene after Jesus had been beat, which depicts this boisterous cruelty which this band of rough soldiers can be expected to inflict. The Roman cloak that was put on him, uh, 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 on his uh, bleeding body, was called a, a sogum. And a sogum uh, was a short, woolly, military uh, cloak fastened by a clasp on the right shoulder. This short cloak uh, w- would not hide much of Jesus' bare, naked, lacerated, and bleeding body. In this scanty attire, Jesus was mocked. And I imagine that wreath of thorns just being jammed viciously on, onto Jesus' head. For surely the abuse in a military barracks in that time would be crude, rough, cruel, and vicious. After this gruesome beating, Pilate brings Jesus out to this angry mob of people whose sin and thirst for blood rejected Jesus. The people who once loved Jesus, adored Jesus, saw him perform miracles and heal people, welcomed him into Jerusalem with with palm branches, had hailed him as their king, had now rejected him. Sin had clouded the people who now just want to see him dead. Even with all of Pilate's pleas saying that Jesus is innocent, Pilate said that he was innocent seven times. He declared that. But sin and darkness had overcome this angry mob of people. Pilate had the power to release Jesus, yet would be risking a massive rebellion in Rome. This all took place during the Passover, which was this once-a-year once celebration where millions of people flocked to Jerusalem for this. And this would be equivalent to like if Spokane 
hosted the Olympics, Hoop Fest, the Expo, and it was all during Christmas time, and everyone was jam-packed downtown. It would be ridiculous. And millions of people had congregated all the way to Jerusalem, packed with people. And this angry mob was just growing and growing as time went on. And Pilate didn't want to be on bad terms with Caesar because he's just going to get, if he does this, you know. And he's risking this rebellion in Rome if, if he releases Jesus. And all these people at the Passover who wanted to see this guy dead were just going to have this massive rebellion and he had this on his hands. He wouldn't know what to do. And ultimately, so Pilate, seeing this, not wanting to be on bad terms with Caesar and not wanting to risk a rebellion, he just appeases the people. John 19, 15 through 16 says, They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Pilate, with one last attempt, played the guilt card on the crowd. With an effort to calm the crowd and to try and talk some kind of sense into them. The man who they had labeled as their king. He said, shall I crucify your king? Yet notice the deep irony in the people and the, and the religious leaders who said, we have no king but Caesar. They had chosen the people who are the religious leaders who to set example of worshiping God and, and having an heavenly Messiah and king. They had chosen to follow an earthly king rather than their heavenly Messiah. And it just got me thinking how many times do we do this in our day? Like Pilate just want to keep good status with all people. You don't want to risk any kind of relationship, you know, a rebellion in a relationship or anything like that. And I can't talk to my, my friend about Jesus because, you know, they may make fun of me. Or, or I can't invite... Uh, my friend, our Easter service, because maybe they'll judge me. And I knew that God was going to play this in my life leading up to this when I wrote that sentence. And, and just last night, I'm sitting there getting my hair cut. And uh, the lady's like, oh, so where do you work? And I'm like, oh, I'm a youth pastor at Life Center North. And she's like, oh, big Easter plans? And I'm like, yep. <laughs> just starts cutting. And I got home and I was like, oh, my can't believe I just did that. How many times do we just not want people to feel like we're judging them and being like, hey, we do have great Easter plans. I want you to come this next Sunday to our Easter service. Instead, I, I just was like, I'm tired. I, I just want to get my hair cut, lady. How many times do we do that? What happens if I invite my coworker and they just make fun of me or they judge me or what if my boss asked me to do something morally questionable at work i wouldn't want to displease him because maybe i'm up for a promotion or if i stop sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend they'll probably just leave me it's hard to be a spiritual leader in my home with my kids and my wife you know it, it takes too much time and you know it's awkward or too hard to love my husband and show him compassion because I only get let down. Instead, we appease people. And ultimately, we appease ourselves instead of 
glorifying God. Or like the religious leaders, choose other earthly things to be our king instead of the person who deserves the rightful place on the throne of our life. Even though we may not say it to ourselves, or maybe you do admit it, either way, instead of worshiping Jesus Christ, the one who deserves my worship, I worship my work. It rules my life. It governs my actions, controls how I act. When I come and go, I worship my kids. If they're not performing at their absolute best, then I'm not doing my job. Or with my kids, my my schedule just completely focuses around them. Or my king is in in a bottle or in an addiction. I worship it. What we do is we take that crown which Jesus right, rightly deserves, and we take it and we put it on ourselves, like the religious leaders did. So then through this sin of this angry mob, Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. Verses 17 and 18 share this. So they took Jesus and went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the school, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Jesus had been beaten to near death, mocked, humiliated, and now his disfigured body with deep, open lacerations everywhere, deprived on food and water, exhausted. Jesus had to carry his own cross all the way until his body collapsed. And they uh, uh, inscripted another man, Simon, to carry it the rest of the way to where he would ultimately be crucified. And crucifixion was one of mankind's most brutal, sick, and twisted ways of killing someone. It started in the Persian Empire who brought it into the uh, Roman culture. And in this time, crucifixions were, you know, thousands, sometimes a week. And it was a, a cruel way to kill someone. Under Roman law, it confined crucifixion to slaves and degraded people. The cross consisted of a perpendicular stake with a crossbeam, probably fixed below the top of the stake, where Jesus, in Jesus' case, his accusation was nailed above him. The seat or a pin was sometimes driven into the stake, or a footrest was affixed on the stake. The intent of the device was to delay death for two to three days as the man suspended by his hands and feet would have loss of blood, pressure rapidly, and his pulse, pulse would, rate would increase. This circumstance is aggravated by the posture that they're in. For outstretched arms restricted the lungs expansion and thus ha- hampering breathing to relieve the heart's attempt to cope with the loss of blood pressure. Added to the effect of the loss of blood from the customary scourging that Jesus went through. This soon brought an orthostatic collapse through the insufficient blood circulating to the brain and heart. If the victim could ease his body up by supporting himself on that seat or footrest, he could take a deep breath And circulation was partially restored to the upper body, thus delaying the death, which could drag on for days. Exhausted by the effort of raising himself to breathe, 
he would sag, jerking the nails through his hands, thus tearing them afresh, aggravating his pain and increasing his torture. In some cases, the victim's legs were then broken by a club if the executioner wanted to hasten death, for this prevented him then to support himself on that stake in which then the body thus would have an accelerated orthostatic collapse. Crucifixion at the time was a means of extreme torture as well as a means of execution. And spectators reveled in this sport for they reveled in the poor victims anguishing, writhing as he died in his excruciating pain. Our sin, the entire world, past, present, and future, had nailed Jesus to the cross where he suffered deep pain and spiritual anguish. We stand before the cross, the cross guilty, guilty of killing the Son of God. For the only reason he died there was because each individual human being being a sinner we are the really we are all the soldiers in the story nailing him to the cross through our sin that happened it can be so easy sometimes to 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 go to church and read stories like this and and go you know what i'm a i'm the good person here i'm not the bad person i'm the good person this is how we live our lives so many times. We buy nice houses on nice streets, right? Be in safe areas where bad people are not. And then we put up big fences and we install security systems. And then we buy a big dog and we put, you know, uh, deadbolts on our doors. And then that's not enough. So we buy guns to shoot any bad person who may come in our home. Because we're the good people, aren't we? They're all the bad people out there. But then interestingly enough, all the bad people out there say that we're the bad people here because religion is the one that caused all the wars and mass killings of people. So who's the good person? Ephesians 2 clearly puts us into perspective, puts us into perspective relative to who God is. We are all, every one of us, all, Evil. We are all inherently evil. And like Ephesians 2 says, we are all by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The rest of mankind. Everyone. We have all created this sinful world that we live in. None of us are good. And in turn, all of mankind nailed Jesus to the cross. Then even after nailing him to the cross, people mocked him. John 19, 23, 24 says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them up into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for it to see who it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which said, They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. They mocked him. On the cross, naked. We'll just throw dice to get a cheap piece of garment. 
What a humiliating experience this had to have been. Bloody, disfigured, beaten, mocked, humiliated. Jesus was about to do and say something that would change history and would change our lives forever. John 19, 28 through 29 says this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus says these words, it is finished. The Greek word for this is tetelestai, which means it is complete. Or in other words, the debt that you and I had had on our lives through our sin had now been discharged. It was paid in full. Everything that Jesus had set out to do was now complete. Instead of us having to pay for the price of our own sin, which we rightly, rightly deserve to do that, which is death, eternal separation from God, Jesus stood in our place. He paid the price of our sin. It's paid in full. It's complete. God's undeserving grace was poured out under the world to save it. God longs to be in a relationship with you and I. He longs to be in a relationship with his people. Through our sin, it separated us from God. And instead of just wiping the map clean, pulling a Noah's Ark on us all, instead of doing that, he comes down himself. The God of the universe comes down to our world a part of his plan to restore his people back into a right relationship with him. And the only way to do that was to be a perfect, blameless, sinless sacrifice. He stood in our place, took on the sin of the world for us. Blameless. And that punishment of death, which we all deserved, he took and he died and was nailed to a cross. Blameless. Sinless. He took the punishment for us. Matthew 27 accounts for this when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That instant on the cross is when Jesus took the entire sin of the world and he put it on himself, separating himself from the perfect relationship he had with the Father. Sin had surrounded him And God had to turn his back on that. Because sin cannot be in the sight of God. Jesus took that sin, suffered deep spiritual anguish, which we really don't know what that was like. But I'm sure it was equally, if not much more intense, is the pain that he went through. He did that. He suffered on the cross with that spiritual anguish. But through that, through him dying on the cross and taking the sin... He made us right when we enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And now we're able to receive this gift of grace. And even if Jesus had died on the cross, that's all it took. 
That's all it took to pay for our sins. But then three days later, Jesus conquered death and conquered the grave when he rose again. And that's what we look forward to in Easter and why it's such a big celebration. Our sin was nailed to the cross through Jesus Christ, buried with him in the grave. But then Jesus, beating death, he rose. And through him, we stand alive. No more guilt, no more shame, just freedom through Jesus Christ and the grace that he offers us. Here's the thing, though. The book of Romans says, I will lay a stumbling block in Zion. This block that it talks about is the cornerstone of the church, who is Jesus Christ, who embodies all of the Father's love and extravagant grace for his children. And it can be so easy to stumble over that sometimes. That stumbling block that's laid there, which is his grace. So easy to stumble over. And to take for granted what Jesus suffered for on the cross. And to take the cross for granted. It's so easy sometimes to stumble over that and go... You know, it's easier to accept, well, it's, I'll just work my way up to heaven. And maybe he'll meet me part of the way or something, I don't know. But I'll just do good things and work my way up. We stumble over that and go, how can this grace be paid in full? Even as Christians, people who have accepted that, we stumble over that all the time. And, and allow that shame and guilt to creep in our heart and go, I don't deserve this. Or it's really not that. And we stumble over it. Instead of accepting that God worked his way all the way down to the lowest levels and died the most humiliating way that anyone could die for you and I. And I believe this morning that God wants to remove that stumbling block for you that stumbling block that you've been tripping over. His grace, it's not sufficient in my life. His grace, I just take it for granted. So what do I do? I just keep on sinning, just keep on doing what I'm doing. When, when we look at the cross and what Jesus did for really what it is, there's no way that we can go on sinning lightly. And I believe that God wants to remove that stumbling block in many of our lives this morning accept God's grace is sufficient, paid in full, it's completed. That anger that you deal with, it was paid in full. That porn addiction that you have, it's finished. That guilt and shame that you suffer from that past abuse in your life, it's done. It had been completed. It is paid in full. Maybe that morally questionable thing that you did, that you feel guilt over. It's done. It's over. Maybe you lost your virginity years back. It's over. That was paid for and finished for you and I. And I believe that God wants to remove that thought in your mind and that stumbling block that you have to accept God's grace as 100% sufficient in your life. And even though Ephesians 2 says that by nature we are all children of wrath, 
We are all evil and never not once deserved anything Jesus did for us. Let alone for him to die for us. This is what Ephesians 2 says. And we are all by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses or in our sin. He made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages we might show. He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. And kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one can boast. All we have is complete, utter thankfulness. We stand in awe of a God who would die for you and I. Who would want to be in a relationship with you and I. And let me just say, if you have never received that gift of grace in your life, and you've never entered into a relationship, God has been pursuing you your entire life up until this moment. Just like Saul. Saul killed Christians. He wanted to do nothing with them. Never pursued God once. But what did God do? God pursued Saul. And then Paul became one of the great evangelists of all time. And leading up to this moment, God has been pursuing you your entire life. Even if you had never pursued him once or thought you had been pursuing him but been stumbling over and over and over again on this stumbling block of his grace and never fully accepted it into your life as 100%. God is pursuing you and he wants to enter into a relationship with you this morning. And he wants to remove that stumbling block. And even if you had already entered into a relationship and there's that stumbling block there that you keep tripping over, I believe that God wants to remove that this morning. So let's pray. And then we're just going to worship. And can I just remember back when I went to that movie of the Passion of the Christ and people are getting emotional and all these things. And, and that's okay to get emotional in light of the cross because it, it, it brings deep emotion. But really... It should allow us to respond to the cross. There should be some type of response when we see the cross. And we're just going to pray and then we're going to worship. And in view of that, if you want to sit, stand, whatever you want to do, let's just respond to that. But first, let's pray. And for anyone here who wants to enter into a relationship, I want to pray for you this morning. All you have to do is pray this simple prayer. Just believing in Christ. And allowing his forgiveness to cover you. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you've done, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for us. Thank you, Lord. We stand in awe of you this morning. And there is nothing we can do but have complete, utter thankfulness for what you've done. And if you want to enter into a relationship with Jesus right now, would you just pray this prayer after me, just in your own heart and your own mind? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for me. 
I believe that you died on that cross. And that when you said it is finished, it was finished. Forgive me for all my sins, Lord. Restore me back to a right relationship with you. I invite you into my heart to be the Lord and Savior of my life. Thank you, Jesus. Remove that stumbling block of grace in my life. I want to live in freedom with you. And those of you who've maybe just suffered that stumbling block of just can't getting past that abuse or or sin or whatever it is, would you just believe in prayer and agree in prayer that that stumbling block is going to be removed this morning? God, I pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that that stumbling block that, that gets in the way of us of accepting your grace and living these free lives would be removed today in Jesus' name that the enemy would not hold power over that and that we would walk away from here living free lives. No shame, no guilt anymore. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's just take some time just to reflect and be thankful for what God has done and just worship this morning.